I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 29. At the end of July, we uh, finished off in Genesis chapter 28, and if you remember, Jacob was on his way to Haran, uh, about 500 miles to the north. He left off from Beersheba in southern Canaan. He'd been sent to Haran by his father and mother for two reasons. The first reason being to uh, flee from his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him, and secondly, uh, he was, uh, Jacob was instructed to find a wife from among the daughters of his mother's brother. Uh, so J- Jacob's extended family lived in Haran. Uh, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, had moved from Haran about 160 years earlier But Abraham's brother Nahor remained in Haran, and Nahor and his wife Milcah had several children, including Bethuel, and Bethuel fathered Rebekah and Laban, and through God's providential guidance, about 97 years earlier, Rebekah had left Haran and traveled to Canaan and became the wife of Isaac. That was 97 years earlier. Earlier, Meanwhile, Rebekah's brother Laban remained in Haran, and Laban had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the backdrop to our text for this morning. And you'll recall, early in Jacob's journey to Haran, he had a remarkable encounter with the Lord in the city of Luz, and uh, Jacob memorialized this encounter by naming the place Bethel, which means house of God, and after responding to God's grace with acts of worship and dedication, Jacob resumed his journey to Haran. If he was traveling about 25 miles per day, maybe maybe did a little little faster or a little slower, but that, that would have taken him about 20 days about three weeks to make it to Haran. So let's, let's read Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. 
While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house, and Jacob, <clears throat> Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast but in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me, that I'd not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. <clears throat> this is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for every passage of Scripture by which you mean to encourage us, instruct us, and shape us into your faithful people who bear good fruit. So I pray that you would take this text and make it profitable in our, in our hearts and minds and lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's, let's just walk through the passage as it unfolds, and we'll consider a, a couple of practical lessons along the way, and then at the very end, there's one particular application that I want us to ponder. First... Verse 1, Jacob arrives in the land near Haran, the land of the people of the east, 
evidently refers to or at least includes the region of Padan Aram, which is the region where the town of Haran was located, and from the context of chapter 29, the town of Haran is nearby. Second, in verses 2 to 12, Jacob meets his cousin Rachel. The setting is a well in the field. And of course, in the ancient world, wells were especially important for the sustenance of human beings and animals. In our modern world, the phrase watering hole has a completely different connotation, but in the ancient world, community wells were literal watering holes where people gathered to obtain life-giving and life-sustaining water for the sake of daily survival and also to fulfill daily chores. And whether planned or unplanned, people met at wells. I mean, just, just think about Scripture. If you go back a few chapters, Abraham's servant met Rebecca, Isaac's future wife, at a well. And if you go forward a little bit into the book of Exodus... Moses fled from Pharaoh and ended up in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well, and there he met Jethro's seven daughters, one of whom became his wife. And of course, in the Gospels, our Lord Jesus Christ, wearied from his journey from Judea to Galilee, sat beside a well at Sychar, where he met the Samaritan woman who came to draw water. Wells were places of rest and nourishment upon which people depended and where people met, where relationships leading to marriage were struck, and where the Savior taught a thirsty soul about living water that refreshes the heart forever. Here in Genesis chapter 29, the custom was for the large stone on the well's mouth to be removed when all the flocks were gathered there so that all the sheep from all the flocks could be watered at the same time. At the moment, however, Jacob was less interested in sheep and more interested in finding his uncle Laban. So he inquired of the shepherds as to where they were from and if they knew Laban and if they did know Laban, if they knew how Laban was doing. Of course, Laban was the direct son of Bethuel, who was the direct son of Nahor. So when Jacob refers to Laban as the son of Nahor, you can see how he's using the word son in a more general way to refer to a male descendant. In any case, these shepherds were from Haran. They knew Laban, and they knew that it went well with him. As it happened, Laban's daughter Rachel was a shepherdess who was making her way to the well so that her flock of sheep could be watered along with all the other sheep. Jacob, Jacob had never met Rachel before, but the shepherds alerted him to the fact that Rachel was coming there in verse 6. See, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. While Jacob was still speaking with the shepherds, he expressed his disagreement with the way they managed their sheep watering schedule verse 7, but they, re they replied by simply uh, affirming the fact that they were going to follow their own local custom in verse, in verse uh, 8. There's no need for us to analyze their disagreement. What is important for us to understand is that once Rachel showed up on the scene, 
Jacob gave his full attention to Rachel. Now, remember Jacob's situation. Don't over-romanticize this. He had left home and had been on the road by himself for about three weeks, maybe more. He must have been very tired and quite eager to find rest in his uncle Laban's house. Rachel didn't merely represent a marriage prospect. She was a point of contact with Jacob's extended family, an extended family that he had never met, and yet an extended family with whom he had come to live. So as we come to verses 9 to 12, the other shepherds fade into the background, and Jacob becomes focused on his cousin Rachel and the sheep under her care. Whatever the other shepherds might have been doing for their flocks, Jacob took the initiative to roll the stone from the well's mouth and water the flock of Laban. Don't miss the obvious. Jacob's first act toward his cousin Rachel was an act of service. Then, verse 11, Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. He was overwhelmed and overjoyed to be in the presence of extended family. Jacob informed Rachel that her father Laban was his relative and that he was Rebekah's son. Presumably, Rachel knew that her, her brother's sister was named Rebekah. And with this surprising turn of events in the field, uh, Rachel cannot wait to tell her father the good news. And so she ran and told her father, and apparently Laban's sheep remained with Jacob while Rachel ran to her father's house. The meeting of Jacob and Rachel, and also the meeting of Jacob and Laban, which we're going to look at in just a minute, reminds me of Proverbs 25, verse 25, which says, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Third, turning to verses 13 and 14, Jacob meets his uncle Laban. Rachel had run to her father in verse 12, and now, after Laban heard the good news about Jacob, Laban runs to meet Jacob. After a warm embrace, Laban brought his nephew Jacob to his house, and it says, the text says that Jacob told Laban all these things. What all these things are isn't specified, but I assume that Jacob was getting Laban kind of caught up on all the things that concerned his sister Rebekah back in Canaan. Remember, they had parted 97 years Earlier, That's a lot of ground to cover. And Jacob may have also told Laban about the, the circumstances that led to his own journey to Haran. You can see how this passage just pulsates with the energy and the joy of extended family relationships. The phrase, Laban, his mother's brother, occurs three times in verse 10. The phrase, her father's kinsman, occurs in verse 12. The phrase, Rebekah's son, also occurs in verse 12. And the phrase, Jacob, his sister's son, occurs in verse 13. And so, so the passage is, is, in a sense, it's going out of the way to, to highlight the, the, the importance 
of these extended family relationships. And in light of all this, Jacob fittingly tells Jacob, surely you are my bone and my flesh in verse 14. Adam had spoken with such poetic exuberance upon receiving his wife. Do you remember? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, Genesis 2.23. And now Laban speaks with similar exuberance upon discovering a practical relationship with his nephew. And after Jacob entered his uncle's house, he remained with him a month. Now, point number four, verses 15 to 20, Jacob makes a marriage contract. Specifically, Jacob makes a marriage contract with Laban to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel. The contract emerges in a discussion about the terms of Jacob's service to Laban. During his first month with Laban, Jacob must have been helping out on Laban's farm. Laban was evidently providing Jacob with room and board, but beyond this basic level of maintenance, Jacob was not earning any compensation. Laban recognized that he ought to compensate Laban for his work. He says in verse 15, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And as it turns out, Jacob didn't want money or possessions. Instead, he wanted to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel. As a matter of fact, Laban had two daughters, verse 16. Laban's oldest daughter was Leah, who was weak in the eyes and must have been comparatively plain in appearance in contrast to Rachel. Rachel was the younger daughter who was beautiful in form and appearance, verse 17. Jacob's affection was firmly fixed on the younger of the two. Jacob loved Rachel, and so Jacob took advantage of the opportunity to name his wages by asking Laban for Rachel's hand in marriage. Jacob promised, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban agreed to the proposal, verse 19, and thus Jacob obligated himself to serve Laban for seven years in exchange for the promise of receiving Rachel at the end of those seven years, and Jacob fulfilled his obligation. It is interesting to note the phrase, a few days. Back in Genesis chapter 27, verse 44, you could just flip back a page or two just to see that. In, in Genesis 27:44, Rebekah told Jacob to stay with Laban a few days. Your translation might say a while, but the phrase literally means a few days. <laughs> literally, Jacob did not stay with Laban for a few days. He stayed with him for seven years plus seven years plus six years. But don't miss the significance. Jacob's first seven years with Laban, verse 20, seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for Rachel. There's a very simple lesson for us here. In the most kind providence of God, difficult and prolonged outward circumstances can be soothed and sweetened by God's gracious provisions. The Lord has a well-stocked arsenal of gracious provisions. And what he gives you in a specific circumstance may differ from what he gives others in their circumstances. 
Though, J- though Joseph was sold into slavery, the Lord was with Joseph and prospered him in numerous ways. Likewise, for Daniel, who was exiled to Babylon but knew the favor of God upon his life, the, uh, the Apostle Paul testified in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 to 7. Just think about how practical this is. For even when we came into Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. Every believer is able to draw strength from God's great love revealed by Christ at Calvary, and made real in the believer's experience through the Holy Spirit. Paul taught us in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. The first verse of the hymn, day by day and with each passing moment, communicates a vital truth. The words are this, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. In in perfect wisdom, our Heavenly Father lovingly, lovingly gives to us a mingling of trials, pain, and toil on the one hand, with pleasure, peace, and rest on the other hand. It is not for you or me to determine the apportionment that we receive. We trust in our Father's wise bestowment and therefore have no cause for worry or for fear. Jacob had seven years of service in a foreign land, separated from father and mother and alienated from his brother, but he had a roof over his head, a seat at his uncle Laban's table and the joy of Rachel, the love of Rachel in his heart. And since these seven years seemed to him but a few days, we must conclude that these seven years were not characterized by angst, impatience, or sorrow for those are the very things that make the days seem long. He invested himself in his daily tasks and he did so with a bounce in his step and joy in his heart in view of the wonderful prospect of marriage that was set before him. Fifth, moving to verses 21 to 26, Jacob is bamboozled on his wedding night. Bamboozled is a fun word that means cheated, but it is not fun to be bamboozled. After completing his seven years of service, Jacob told Laban that it was time for him to make good on his promise. Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed, verse 21. Laban proceeded to arrange for a a great wedding feast, verse 22, and Jacob was thrilled to be on the cusp 
of consummating his marriage to Rachel, but as it turns out, Laban had a trick up his sleeve. Verse 23, but in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Sometimes sinners get a taste of their own medicine. Was it not Jacob who seven years earlier disguised himself as his brother Esau in order to receive the blessing that his father had intended to give Esau? Rebekah had engineered that plan, and now we learn that her brother Laban was no slouch in the scheme to deceive department. Now Leah is presented to Jacob incognito under the cover of nighttime darkness and under the cover of a veil. Leah is, Leah is presented to Jacob as if she is her sister Rachel in order to receive the seal of the marriage covenant that Jacob intended to make with Rachel. Isaac's blessing upon Jacob could not be undone to Esau's great disappointment, and now Jacob's consummated marriage with Leah could not be undone. Talk about a serious bummer. A bummer that Jacob didn't discover until the light of the morning shone in the tent. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Yikes. Jacob registered his disapproval in verse 25. What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And, you know, Laban appealed to his nation's custom, right? It's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And J Jacob might well have replied, uh, why didn't you tell me this sooner? <laughs> but if Jacob had a tender conscience, I don't know if he did, but if he did, he might have heard his conscience say to his heart, Jacob, you know a thing or two about firstborn and younger sibling dynamics, don't you? What Laban did to you is not substantially different than what you did to your father. You deceived your father and obtained his blessing dishonorably. Now Laban has deceived you and drew you into marriage with Leah dishonorably. Perhaps you should respond with a little humility. Now, I have no idea if Jacob actually had such a line of thought, but I say these things not for Jacob's benefit, but for your benefit. Don't be surprised when the ways in which you sin against other people show up at your own front door. And at such times, humbly recognize that you do not have the moral high ground. So stand down and let the bitter taste of your own medicine induce you to repentance. And in that repentance, learn to forgive the Labans who bamboozle you. Sixth, verses 27 to 30, Jacob marries Rachel. Now let's unpack this a bit. To Jacob's relief, polygyny was a real option. And I intend to say polygyny, not polygamy, because I want to be more precise. Polygyny is a word that refers to a situation in which a man has more than one wife. Although polygyny is inconsistent with God's original design for monogamous marriage, God permitted polygyny in the Old Testament. Someday I may speak at length about polygyny, maybe a whole sermon or a whole midweek thought. 
But for now, I simply want to call your attention to the fact that God permitted it in the Old Testament. Now, once the law was set forth, a man was not allowed to marry two sisters. See Leviticus 18, verse 18. But since the law was not yet given, that particular restriction did not apply to Jacob's situation. Now, whether Laban or Jacob had given any serious reflection to the moral status of polygyny, I have no idea. They may have simply been following local customs. But be that as it may, in verse 27, Laban proposes this course of action. Complete the week of this one, his marriage, week-long marriage celebration to Leah, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me in other seven years. Now Laban, shrewd, is not going to let Jacob get two wives for the price of one. Jacob worked seven years for wife number one, and he's going to have to work another seven years for wife number two. However, he will get to marry wife number two at the beginning of those seven years and won't have to wait another seven years to marry Rachel. So Jacob, Jacob completed the week-long marriage uh, celebration to Leah, verse 28, and then immediately he was able to get married to Rachel. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Thus, in the course of about eight days, Jacob obtained two wives. Each wife had her own maidservant. Laban gave Zilpah to be maidservant to Leah, verse 24, and Laban gave Bilhah to be maidservant to Rachel, in verse 29. Once married to Rachel, Jacob proceeded to render another seven years of service to Laban, and all of this sets the stage for the very colorful childbearing competition that takes place during these seven years, which we will examine next week, Lord willing. Now, I I attempted to weave a couple of practical lessons through the, the exposition of the text, but there's one particular application now that I want us to ponder as we conclude our study of this passage. Did you notice... How many times the Lord is mentioned in Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 30? Zero times. There's no mention of the Lord revealing his will to Jacob, no mention of Jacob praying to the Lord, no mention of Jacob or of anyone else speaking or acting in the name of the Lord. When you compare this passage to Jacob's extraordinary encounter with the Lord, In Bethel, in the previous passage at the end of chapter 28, this passage in chapter 29 about Jacob's first seven years in Haran seems unremarkable, commonplace, and ordinary. A man goes on a journey to spend time with his extended family, meets the woman he wants to marry, and works hard on his uncle's farm in order to to turn that desire into reality. He gets bamboozled in the process, and that adds an unexpected complication to his life, but he still gets the the girl that he pledged to marry. This is the stuff of ordinary life. Extended family relations, hard work, unexpected difficulties, and marriage. Jacob lived in the ordinary, and so do you and I. And I think this is a really important lesson for us because we make a great mistake when we think that our walk with God is supposed to be characterized by continual mountaintop experiences, such as the experience that Jacob had at Bethel or that Peter, James, and John had with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Mountaintop experiences are only supposed to be exceptional and occasional, whereas we are called to live faithfully each day in the valleys and plains of ordinary life. So where is the Lord in Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 30? Although he is not mentioned in the passage itself, we know that the Lord is with Jacob every step of the way through chapter 29. How do we know this? Because the Lord made a promise to Jacob in chapter 28. Look at Genesis chapter 28, verse 15. This is like a a banner over all of the Jacob narratives, including the passage we studied this morning. In Genesis 28, 15, the Lord says to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. When Jacob arrives by the well in the field, when Jacob enters his uncle's house, when Jacob works in his uncle's fields and tends his uncle's flocks, when Jacob enters into the covenant of marriage, in all this the Lord is not afar off, but the Lord is with Jacob to bless him, preserve him, and provide for all of his needs. Some people think that if they're going to walk with God, then they have to get super spiritual. They have to somehow escape ordinary life and be drawn into a constant stream of mystical or monastic or excessively religious pursuits. As a corrective to such pious nonsense, I would like to encourage you to see Jacob as an ordinary man who was living in accordance with God's design. Just, just, just think about it. Jacob obeyed his father and his mother. That's told us in Genesis 28, verse 7. That's why he was going to visit Laban in the first place, out of obedience to his parents. In keeping with Genesis 2.24, Jacob left his father and his mother in order to claim a bride. In keeping with God's design for men to work the earth, Genesis 2.15 and Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19, Jacob was an industrious worker, not a priest in a temple either, but a worker in the field. In keeping with Genesis 2, verses 18 to 24, Jacob rightly recognized the value of a, of a wife as indicated in his willingness to devote seven years of income to acquire Rachel. I mean, how many, how many people just waste their wages on trivialities? Not Jacob. Now, while, while his commitment to work seven years for Rachel certainly reflects cultural expectations concerning a bride price to be paid to the bride's family, nevertheless, it reflects deeper truth. For example, an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels, Proverbs 31.10. And he who finds a wife finds a good thing and and obtains favor from the Lord, Proverbs 18.22. Moreover, Jacob did not resent the high cost of acquiring a wife, but fulfilled his seven-year commitment with joy. Finally, even after the great disappointment of being deceived into marrying the wrong sister and having his hand forced to work an additional seven years, he stayed the course. One of the most popular errors that gains traction among religiously minded people is that they ought to be hyper-religious. 
and reject the ordinary gifts of marriage and hard work. The New Testament is clear, however, that marriage is to be held in honor among all, Hebrews chapter 13. And as for work, we are commanded to shun idleness and to pursue productive labor. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 and 12. Don't chase some ethereal spiritual life. Get down to business. Do your work with integrity and grace. Prepare for marriage, or if you are already married, demonstrate practical love for your spouse. The Lord works through these ordinary activities to accomplish his kingdom purposes in our lives. In Jacob's case, the Lord was working through Jacob's ordinary activities of work and marriage in order to fulfill his promise to Jacob that Jacob's offspring shall be the dust of the earth, Genesis, she'll be like the dust of the earth, Genesis 28, 14. And of course, in God's economy, marriage comes before the children. In our case, the Lord is working through our ordinary, ordinary activities in order to display his glory through the saltiness of our lives. As the Apostle Peter instructed, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter, I think that's 1 Peter 2.12. And if you, if you go on, he gives instructions about being a citizen, being a bondservant, being a wife, being a, being a husband, being a Christian to, together and being a Christian in the face of suffering. Really. Practical, down-to-earth stuff. Now, do I mean that if you simply get married and work hard that you will be walking with God? Of course not. Unbelievers may get married and work hard, and they're not walking with, with God. What I do mean is that if God has called you and laid hold of you by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the spheres in which he calls you to follow him are the ordinary spheres of extended family, hard work, unexpected trials, and for most of his followers, marriage. Don't despise these spheres. Don't resent the mundane. Paul Tripp very memorably said, if God does not rule your mundane, then he doesn't rule you because that's where you live. This is true. We live in the mundane. But the Lord is with us in the mundane. His, his promise to be with Jacob and to preserve Jacob wherever Jacob goes is indeed the same commitment that the Lord has to all of his redeemed people. As Hebrews 13.5 extends the Lord's promise to every believer, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So my encouragement to you all is to let Genesis chapter 29 verses 1 through 30 ground you, that you would be grounded in the ordinary gifts that the Lord has given to us for our good, knowing this promise that the Lord will never leave you, knowing that the Lord is already with you through Christ, knowing that the Lord will never forsake you but will rather be faithful to fulfill all of his promises that he's made to his people. Knowing this, don't, don't chase after elusive 
super spiritual experiences. Instead, keep putting one foot in front of the other and be diligent in all of your relationships and all of your responsibilities. And as you do that, trust that the Lord is sanctifying your life, building your house, and incorporating your labors into his big picture plan for his glory and your good. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that we would be grounded, that we would be grounded in your word, that we would be grounded in life as you designed it, that we would be grounded in in family, an extended family, that we would be grounded in honorable work, that our life would be taken up with productive tasks and loving relationships, and that we would offer all of these things to you as a form of service to you and honoring your design and reflecting your character. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us to be your faithful people, salt and light as we go back to our, to our families and to our neighborhoods and to our workplaces and to our friendships and ministry teams, that in those very places, your grace would shine brightly in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.